You're listening to The Revealer Podcast, where we explore how religion shapes our culture and our communities. Produced by the Center for Religion and Media at NYU and hosted by me, Dr. Brett Crutch. Each month, we sit down with experts to discuss the role religion plays in politics, in people's lives, and throughout our world. In today's show, we're discussing the connection between American Jews and comedy. Are Jews disproportionately represented in comedy fields like stand-up and television writing? What is it about American Jewish culture and the place of Jews in the United States that has contributed to the idea of Jews as a funny people? And as the image of American Jews continues to expand to include more people of color and queer and trans Jews, how will Jewish humor change in the future? Hi, everyone. Welcome to The Revealer Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Brett Crutch. I'm very excited to be chatting today with Dr. Jennifer Kaplan. She is the author of the new book out this March called Funny, You Don't Look Funny, Judaism and Humor from the Silent Generation to Millennials. You can read an excerpt from her book in the upcoming March issue of The Revealer at therevealer.org. And you can read her great Revealer article, People of the Joke, American Jews and Comedy, from The Revealer's November 2022 issue also at therevealer.org. Hi, Jenny. It's great to chat with you. How are you doing today? Hi, Brett. I'm doing great, and I'm so excited to be here talking with you. Great. Me too. So as our regular listeners know, we cover pretty heavy topics here on the Revealer podcast. So I thought for this episode on Jewish humor, it would be nice as a sort of change to start by asking you to share with us one of your favorite Jewish jokes. So if you don't mind, what is a Jewish joke you really like? Oh, gosh. I mean, there's so many, right? That's kind of the the whole reason for the conversation is that it's such a massive, uh, a massive canon of material. But um, there's one that I come back to because I feel like it illustrates hmm. so many of the elements about things that we want to label as Jewish humor. So it's it's a story about a grandmother who has taken her grandson to the beach for the day. And she is sitting on the beach watching him swim and, and he's sort of out in the waves. And a, a rogue wave comes and washes the lad out to sea. Mm. And the grandmother who has not prayed with any sort of fervor in decades, uh-huh. finds herself struck with the overwhelming need to, to pray for the salvation of her grandson. And so she begins to offer up prayers and says, you know, God, please, if you can see it in your mercy to save my grandson, he's only nine. He has his whole life ahead of him. He's probably going to cure cancer. Please just <laughs> save my grandson. Mm-hmm. And another wave comes and lifts the boy up and deposits him safely on the beach and the grandmother runs up and and she grabs her grandson and she hugs him and then she looks up at the sky and says he had a hat (laughs) there's so much about that but i think one of my favorite elements of it is that it really kind of hits at this american jewish thing especially in humor that you you can never just be satisfied you can't ever just be happy that you've always got to kind of be looking for the next thing to complain about so even when a great miracle has saved your grandson you're concerned about the fact that his hat didn't come back with him 
Great. I love it. Thank you. So I'm sure between the two of us, we could rattle off a long list of funny Jews or Jews who have made a living being funny from people like Joan Rivers, Amy Schumer, Eugene Levy, Billy Eichner, Tiffany Hoddish, Andy Borowitz, Larry David, the list goes on and on, several of whom you mention in your book. But I want to start by asking if Jewish Americans really are disproportionately represented in comedy fields or if that is just a myth. So are fields like stand-up, TV and film comedy writers and humorous book authors disproportionately filled with Jews? Is that something that we can even know? And if it is based in some reality, do you have a sense of how that came to happen? So uh, the short answer is yes. I mean, it it is absolutely true in Mm. the sense that Jews make up 2% of the American population. So mm-hmm. yeah, they're disproportionately represented because they're more than 2% mm-hmm. of, of comedy. So I, I mean, as a pure function of math, <laughs> they are absolutely disproportionately represented. The question I think is, are they as disproportionately represented as our sense of comedy is? Mm-hmm. Steve Allen wrote a book in like 1981 called funny people in which he estimated that 80% of the professional comedy writers were Jewish. That I think is the real question. It's not are Jews disproportionately represented because absolutely like even if Jews only make up 10%, Mm -hmm. they're disproportionately represented. If they in fact made up 80%, that is a catastrophically disproportionate number. That's where I think the urban legend starts to come into play. I don't think Jews were ever that disproportionately represented, but I do think that when we look at the history of the art form, when we look at the list of the writers of a lot of the major comedies from the 1960s, 1950s, 1960s on, you do find writing, writing rooms that are, 50% 50% Jewish, 60% Jewish. Some of them were 100% Jewish. Hmm. I mean, there is a real kernel of truth to that. It is certainly changing. I think those numbers are significantly less disproportionate now hmm. okay. than they used to be. Sure. Um, but but yeah, it, it, it very much was true. In terms of why, yeah. um, I, I mean, I, I think that there are probably a lot of answers to that and, and no one answer to that. I think some of it certainly comes from the same reason why Jews are disproportionately represented in many new fields and and new media, mm-hmm. um, because there wasn't a pre-existing guild to keep them out. There wasn't mm-hmm. already a tradition that excluded Jews. Mm-hmm. It, it was a place where an immigrant community, especially if we're talking in the United States, um, you know, a community of new Americans could get in on the ground floor of something. So all of the the same sort of reasons that lead to Jews having success in other new fields, I think that makes up a lot of the reason why. As you were speaking, one of, I was thinking about one of the episodes of Seinfeld that I really like that you describe in your book when Jerry and Elaine's dentist converts to Judaism and Jerry thinks the dentist converted for the joke. So Jerry thinks this guy wants to be Jewish so he can be part of the Jewish humor thing. So beyond, you know, whatever available data there might be about Jews in comedy fields, 
you know, I think there's just this idea in American culture exemplified in that Seinfeld episode that Jews are a funny people. So I'm wondering what you think it is about Jewish cultures and Jewish religion and Jewish history, or maybe the place of Jews in American society that has contributed to making so many Jewish people funny. In other words, if we can say Jews are a funny people, why? How did that happen? So that's a really interesting question. Um, And I'm not sure I would agree that Jews collectively are any funnier than any other collective group. Sure. But what I think we do have is a situation where both collectively and individually, Jews value being funny. Mm -hmm. That that is seen as a as a positive Mm -hmm. attribute. Um, So even those Jews who themselves are not funny, they still see that as a as something to aspire to or, or at least something to value in other people. There's a lot of theories out there. A lot of people want to look at the Talmud and the history of Jewish argumentation. There's a lot of people who want to point to the experience of European Jews in particular being, you know, from the Inquisition on being exiled and ghettoized and and that therefore when you when you have so much negativity in your life, what, what can you do, but Mm -hmm. start to become funny? You know, Mm -hmm. it's it's sort of Mm -hmm. the only way to handle Mm -hmm. that much persecution, but uh, you know, I'm sure all of those things contribute to it. I'm not sure that any one thing can be seen as the reason I, I think in the United States and for American Jews, I do think a lot of it's linguistic. I've seen Yiddish described as a Velcro language. Yiddish is a language that it really pulls from other languages very comfortably. And, you know, the sort of Western Yiddish, which we think about as being, I don't know, standard Yiddish, even that is a, it's a combination of not just German. It's, it's not just German written in Hebrew characters. It's mm. pulling from so many other linguistic families. And then you've got Eastern Yiddish, which is much more Russian hmm. than Western Yiddish. So, so Yiddish is a very flexible language. And I think when you've got, therefore, an immigrant community who have a, a, a very a verbal tradition and, and they do have a, a sort of communal mm-hmm. um, tradition and, and a foundation that includes a lot of, a lot of talking and a lot of dialogue and a lot of back and forth. And, and you're doing that in a language that's very nimble and, and flexible um, and therefore can lend itself to wordplay and, and punning and, um, and the, the sort of humor that comes from the sound of languages, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think that you've got a combination that's going to lead to some immediate success in expressing yourself in a humorous way. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. I also feel like I've read in your work and maybe elsewhere the idea of Jews in the United States as sort of insider outsiders, that many Jews who are white or who pass as white have been able to enter mainstream society in many ways, but because they're Jewish, 
are not fully an insider. You know, they're not totally a wasp. And so that perspective of being insider outsider, um, I feel like I've seen in your work and others has gives people a perspective that leads to seeing things in a funny way. Yeah, I think so. And, and there's, there's been a lot of, um, a lot of sort of analysis of some of the Hayes code era comedy. So the, the Hayes code being the, the predecessor to the MPAA rating system that gives us like the G and ah, PG sure. and R. Yeah. Um, before that, Hollywood had the Hayes Code, which um, they they developed basically to stop Congress from imposing rules on them. Holl- mm. The Hollywood studios got together and said, you know, I tell you what, we'll take care of this ourselves. You don't mm. you don't need to worry about it. We'll, <laughs> we'll come up with our own rules. Um, and so they had these these censorship guidelines. And um, uh, people have argued that both the Marx Brothers and the Three Stooges, for very different reasons, were able to bypass some of those censorship guidelines and and slip in social commentary that they could get away with Hmm. that other people maybe couldn't, that was coming from the, the sort of outsider their outsider status as Jews. Uh, and in the case of the Marx Brothers, um, a lot of it comes from the fact that Groucho just talks so fast. There's there's such a quantity of words yeah. coming out of his mouth that it was sort of hard to latch on to any one thing and, and flag it as a censor. It, it's just the sort of overwhelming barrage of frequently social commentary and with the three stooges it's that they were written off as being just childish and and Mm. lowbrow and it's Mm -hmm. just slapstick so nobody Mm. was actually really looking Mm. for them to make social commentary and they had a they had a two-part like two shorts that they put out the first one was called you nasty spy uh, which actually came out almost a year before charlie chaplin made the great dictator and nobody talks about the fact that the three stooges were out there ridiculing Hitler nearly a year before Chaplin did it. Everyone kind of looks at Chaplin's portrayal as, you know, this, this big, this big social move, but the, the three stooges had already done it. And then they did a follow-up to that called I'll never Heil again. Um, and both of them, yeah, they're very funny. The first one's better than the second one, but, um, but both of them are full of like very sharp social commentary. Um, and, and it just it, it flew under the radar because that's not what people were expecting from the three stooges. So nobody was really closely monitoring what they said. So they, they are able to, to slip in this sort of outsider Jewish view on things that potentially a, a wasp or a mainstream yeah. white American um, performer could not have done. Hmm. Interesting. So I guess then sort of why, now that you've brought up Hitler, I want to... (laughs) Now that we've brought up Hitler. (laughs) I guess I want to ask then about the role anti-Semitism has perhaps played in this connection between Jews and humor, or if you see a connection between a history of anti-Semitism and then producing so much humor and comedy. Yeah, I don't know. Um, I mean, it's a really good question. And I think it's sort of an open question. There is strong support for the idea that part of the reason why uh, Jews value humor so highly is because they've had such a history of persecution and anti-Semitism. It's so hard to say because we don't have, there isn't, we don't have a view into the multiverse to look at the version of earth where Jews didn't experience that to see if they developed a significantly different 
sense of humor. Um, so it, it's, it's hard to say. Certainly, I think there are types of humor. There are a lot of different kinds of humor, right? I think people realize this instinctively, even if they've never studied humor, but they can recognize the difference between kind of physical slapstick humor and verbal humor. There's something called defense mechanism humor mm -hmm. within humor theory. Um, and that that's your basic kid who is getting bullied, mm -hmm. who develops the instinct to make the jokes at her own expense before the bullies can to, to sort of take control of the narrative. Like, oh, if you're if you're being mocked for something about you, if you make the joke, then you're sort of in control of it and, and the bullies aren't. Um, and there is a lot of that in Jewish humor. Um, there, there's a lot of self-deprecation. There's, there's a lot of what we would classify as defense mechanism humor. And so I, I certainly think you can point to anti-Semitism as one of the roots for there being such a, such a large quantity of self-deprecation and, and defensive type humor. So then while we're talking about, you know, sort of broader audiences, you've been making the point throughout that, you know, that uh, in the United States, funny Jews who make money from these fields aren't necessarily only trying to entertain other Jews, they're entertaining the broader culture. So I'm wondering if or why you think the dominant social group in so long, WASPs, white Anglo-Saxon Protestants, have been interested in Jewish humor and so much comedy produced by Jews? Yes, yeah, it's, it's a great question. And it's something I talk about with my students in my Jewish humor class a lot. I, I sort of keep reminding them that, that Jews are 2% of the population. So sure, if a Jewish comedian wants to throw in a, an inside joke or an Easter egg that primarily the, the Jewish or at least the Jewishly literate audience is going to get like that's fine but you you won't succeed you cannot make a career off of humor that is only for mm -hmm. jews mm -hmm. because the there's not enough of an audience you, mm -hmm. you won't you just can't do it. it it's not a it's not a feasible economic model we've got to sort of nod to the model minority situation um in talking about why jewish humor was embraced by the non-jewish majority uh, for a lot of the 20th century. In particular, Jews really occupied that sort of model minority space where they were other, but they were a safe kind of other because the stereotype was that Jews Americanized quickly, that, that they, they learned English, you know, within one generation and, and they harnessed the powers of education and, and Jews focused on school and the upward mobility. Um, there's sort of stereotypes about immigrant groups that you can go one of two ways. Either you get the like, you're going to follow in your father's footsteps. And if it was good enough for your parents, it's good enough for you. Or the, we want better for our children. We came to this country so you could do better than we did. And, and there was this sense that Jews fell into the latter category, whereas some other immigrant groups, particularly the Italians and the Irish immigrants, they were classified as being more of the former. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, none of these things are actually all that statistically true, but mm -hmm. they, they were the they were the broad stereotypes that the that the American population had about these immigrant groups. And, and so I think because Jews were seen as being good 
upwardly mobile and once we're into post-World War II, white Americans, they were a very, they were a safe exotic. They were mm. just different enough that you could feel like you're engaging in some sort of American multicultural melting pot kind of thing. You're getting outside of your bubble, but they're not so different that you're, you're actually engaging with somebody who makes you question your own worldview or, or pushes against your sense of the world. Um, so I don't necessarily think that it was a super healthy mm. relationship. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it leads to some of that defense mechanism and self-deprecation humor that I was just talking about. I think there, there was a point where a lot of Jewish comedians felt as though they were doing a sort of, a sort of minstrel, uh, minstrelsy almost, and that they were performing a particular image of Jewishness that the larger white Protestant audience expected um, and that they expected a, a typical, a certain kind of Jewish masculinity in particular, or certain tropes about Jewish women um, that, that they needed to live up to or down to, as the case may be. Thank you. So uh, much of your book looks at how Jewish humor has changed over time, which I found really fascinating. And I'm wondering if you could, you know, broadly describe some of these major changes for our listeners um, and maybe with some examples uh, from your book that um, many people may know of, of uh, from people like Philip Roth to television shows like Saturday Night Live and Seinfeld or Curb Your Enthusiasm or Broad City or Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. Uh, obviously, no need to go into all of those, but um, you know, I'm curious about what might be some examples that could illustrate for us how you see Jewish humor having changed over time. Yes, well, so I'm glad we have the next uh, six hours together to talk about this. <laughs> um, so, uh, so as you say, that that is the the sort of central um, central structure of the book is is looking at this change over time because what I found as I was studying this material. Um, and, and you always have to put limits on what you're, what you're studying or what you're writing about because these topics are too huge. Um, so in this case, for this book, the, the limit is that I was focused on humor that engages with Jewish stuff and not just humor that's done by Jews. The thing, the examples in my book tend to have some sort of um, specifically or explicitly Jewish content to them. And so what I found as I was looking at it was that it really kind of mapped onto this interesting generational swing from the silent generation. And those are generally defined as the folks who were born in the interwar years in between World War One and World War Two. So they they were the children of the Great Depression. They were the children of the progressive era in the United States, which was the period of the most public anti-Semitism that the U.S. has really had. It was when Henry Ford was publishing his Dearborn Independent and reprinting the Protocols of the Elders of Zion. So it, it, they, they were growing up in a period of, of very, very public anti-Semitism in this country. Um, and they were old enough to be aware of World War II and influenced by it, but for the most part were too young to have fought. In World War II. Um, so you, you've sort of got them on one pole, and then you've got Generation X as the other pole. Um, Generation X being defined as people who are born generally between about 19, 
1965 and 1980. And in between them are the, is the baby boom generation. And, and so what I found as I was looking at it is that when you look at the humor produced by members of the silent generation, so that's people like Philip Roth, as you mentioned, um, Bernard Malamud, Joseph Heller, Woody Allen, Mel Brooks, mm-hmm. um, those folks are all silent generation. They had a very consistent sense of institutionalized religion as being a a dangerous social ill. Um, They had a distrust of institutions, Hmm. but they they had a real sense of protecting the, the idea of Jews as humans, the, the, the need to protect the Jewish community as a group of people, not necessarily a focus on the religion of Judaism. And that actually, it maps onto what, um, there was a writer named Mordecai Kaplan who um, wrote a really foundational book in the 1930s called Judaism as a Civilization. And it's precisely what he was observing in 1934 was hmm. that according to him, the cultural, the civilization elements of Judaism were imperiled. The religious side of it, he wasn't worried about. He sort of said, there's always going to be Orthodox Jews. So the you know, re- religion will be fine. Don't worry about the religion, but we really need to protect the, the culture. And that was even before World War II. So now you've got these silent generation comedians in the 19, um, I look primarily at them and like that's the sixties and the seventies. And they are, very tuned into the idea that that the Jewish civilization is imperiled and that that's a problem. Um, but the the structure, the institutional religion, they don't have any like faith in rabbis. They don't have any real trust in ritual. Um, yeah, they think all of that is sort of a waste of time. So if you jump ahead then to their grandchildren, essentially okay. to, to yeah. Generation X, it's a 180 degree difference. Um, the, the humor that Generation X is producing and uh, two of the best examples of that from my book that, that I think illustrate it really well is the, the film Kissing Jessica Stein mm-hmm. and the book by Jonathan Tropper called This Is Where I Leave You. And in both of those, you've got these characters who are pretty terrible people, um, <laughs> particularly in This Is Where I Leave You. Like that, the, that is a family full of horrible people, <laughs> horrible things to each other. I mean, just dysfunctional with a capital D. But the moments in that film and in that book that most humanize the characters and that give them depth and bring them together are moments of religious ritual. Um, they're, they're moments of engaging in, in kissing Jessica Stein. There's a scene at, uh, a Yom Kippur service. There's a scene at a Jewish wedding. There's a scene at a Shabbat dinner. Um, and in, this is where I leave you. It's, it's in a synagogue when they're saying Kaddish for the, the protagonist's father, the, the patriarch of the family who had died before the book started. Uh, and, and both of those really show religion, Judaism as being a very important thing that that grounds people and that gives these otherwise terrible people some sense of humanity so they they're not particularly concerned about making fun of like jews as jews or this idea that that the civilization of jews is imperiled but they really see religion as something valuable and and something that and not necessarily because they're more you know it's not like a belief thing. That's not really how Jews talk about it anyway. It's not because they're somehow more pious. 
but they're recognizing the importance of tradition and they're recognizing the importance and that, and this Gen X, this is Adam Sandler's Hanukkah song too, right? That's mm. the exact point of the Hanukkah song is like, here's a list of people who are Jewish, just like you and me. Uh, so there's this, this newfound sense of connection to the tradition and to the religion. Um, in the middle of that, you've got the baby boomers. And what I sort of point out about them is that they don't have an identity of their own. Um, humor that's produced by the baby boomers in the 70s, 80s, into the 90s. So things like Saturday Night Live, things like Seinfeld, um, even Curb Your Enthusiasm, although it's later, uh, Larry David is is very much a function of his generation. Um, you know, in, in the 70s, 80s, 90s, it looks like silent generation stuff. And those baby boomers who successfully made a, a transition into the 21st century continue to be popular, like the Cohen brothers, they began to look like what, what Gen X was doing. Um, the, the baby boom comedians, they really follow what the audience wants to a certain extent. They, they see what's working and they see what the viewers and the audience is responding to. And, and they, they do that. So the, the pendulum swing that I, I describe, it really goes from the silent generation on one end to Gen X on the other end, it cuts through the baby boom in the middle. And then millennials, you know, millennials, anything goes. That's that's sort of where the book ends is that for millennials, they'll make fun of anything. <laughs> well, then that's a good uh, transition for uh, what I want to ask for our last question. And that is, you know, as the image of American Jews changes, and I think it has been changing, but, you know, one from primarily of white passing and cisgender and of Eastern European descent to an image with a broader range of races and sexualities, genders, ethnicities. How do you see Jewish humor changing going forward? I think that all of those things are so good for Jewish humor. I think that the the thing that kills humor is complacency and comfort. Hmm. Um, you know, those, those are not funny things to be. And, hmm. and the, 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 the joke about the hat, right? It, you can't ever just be happy because that's not funny. <laughs> there, there needs to be some sort of conflict or there isn't any humor. So I think the more Judaism becomes manifold, uh, the better that that's going to be for Jewish humor. The, the problem there, and it's, it's not a problem. It's a linguistic problem, I guess, is that in order to really capture that diversity, we need to find ways to stop using Jewish as a singular generic adjective that means Ashkenazi, white Ashkenazi, um, which is how it has tended to be used in this country with good reason, because the vast majority of American Jews are white Ashkenazi. So, you know, there, there's, it's not that there's not a good reason why we think Jewish food means matzo ball soup, as opposed to uh, Israeli couscous. You know, there's, there's good reasons for that. But, but we need to try to find ways to talk about what is Jewish that doesn't use Jewish as a stand in for that particular Ashkenazi, or we just need to be more specific when we're talking about something that is specifically Ashkenazi. So I, I love the way that some of the, the new, uh, especially millennial and even moving into Gen Z, um, diversity is changing things. So I, I, I really enjoy watching Adam Sandler's Hanukkah song and then watching David Diggs, I want a puppy for Hanukkah hmm. back to back because hmm. they're, on the one hand, they're very 
they're the same. They're, you know, they're, the David Diggs thing aired on the Disney Channel. So it was, you know, pop culture for a broad sure. audience. Adam Sandler was on SNL. So yeah. there are these, you know, Hanukkah songs, but Hanukkah songs that were put out there for everybody. But they're also so different in their own way. Like David Diggs, you've got these kind of like liturgical melodies running through the background and you've got these kids actually saying the Hanukkah blessings mm. where there's nothing mm -hmm. religious at all in, in Adam Sandler's Hanukkah song. Um, and there's a, there's a very funny song on uh, funny or die the website, funny or yeah, die. Sure. It's a send up of the hip hop song, black and yellow, but it's black and Jewish. Uh, it's, it's these two uh, black Jewish women comedians. Uh, and I think the more we have of that kind of Jewish humor and, and the more material we get in, in that vein, the more it's going to make Jewish humor into a, a, a kind of vibrant, thriving um, field again, because I think that that 60s, 70s style of Ashkenazi Jewish humor is essentially dead. The, the recently deceased and much, much beloved and mourned show reboot um, that just came and went in eight glorious episodes and was then immediately canceled. Um, but it focuses on rebooting this sitcom. And there, the, the, there's a whole subplot about the fact that uh, Rachel Bloom's character is the showrunner. And she has put together this writer's room for the show that's incredibly diverse. It, it's racially diverse. It's got, you know, queer representation. It, it, like it's a very diverse writer's room. And the network is brings on kind of a, a second showrunner who's this old Jewish guy played by Paul Reiser, who also happens to be Rachel Bloom's father on the show. Um, but he brings in a writer's room of old Jews. Uh, so, you know, for most of the show, we end up with this writer's room. That's this conflict between these young millennial slash old Gen Z uh, diverse writers and these old 70 octogenarian, septuagenarian Jewish comedy writers and the kind of like cultural conflict between what one generation thinks is funny and what the other generation thinks is funny. And, and that older model, it doesn't work anymore. And so in order for Jewish humor to stay something worth talking about, it needs to, it needs to be vibrant and it needs to represent what audiences want. And it needs to represent the plurality of the American Jewish population. And I think that that's happening. And I think that that's really great. And we want to celebrate that. Mm, that's great. Thank you. And now I know I need to check out the show Reboot. Yeah, it, it, it's eight 30 minute episodes. And they're not even all like, I think the entire show start to finish is three hours and 42 minutes. Wow. I binged it in one Saturday. <laughs> um, and I'm so upset that it just got canceled. Well, thank you for that. And thank you for this full conversation. That is all the time we have for today. I'd like to thank our guest, Dr. Jennifer Kaplan. You can find an excerpt from her book, Funny, You Don't Look Funny, Judaism and Humor from the Silent Generation to Millennials in the Revealer's upcoming March issue at therevealer.org. And you can order a copy of Funny, You Don't Look Funny at your preferred online book vendor now. I'm Brett Crutch. I hope you'll join us for our next episode next month. We'll be discussing how evangelical church are trying to attract younger people who would not typically be drawn to evangelical Christianity because of issues having to do with gender, sexuality, and race. In the meantime, I hope you stay safe and healthy. 
Thanks for listening to this episode of The Revealer Podcast with music by Kevin McLeod and production editing by Cameron Anderson. If you'd like to get in touch with us, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at therevealerpodcast at gmail.com and check us out at therevealer.org. 